Japan. And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Kutchut Motel 6, it's Arthur's Round, Gary K. Wolfon, the much-delayed, seldom-recorded, but at last back from Ireland, Kutchut Podcast! Hi, Gary. Ireland was fun. I enjoyed Ireland. I enjoyed the uh, the, the, the the very crowded venue for the uh, for the Worldcon. Um, it seemed to me that the first time I walked into the um, convention center in Dublin, which uh, is not the largest convention center that the Worldcon has ever been at by some measure, I noticed long lines of people everywhere, and my first thought was George Martin is doing something. And then the next day, that afternoon, I saw long lines of people everywhere, and I thought, George can't be doing two things. And I finally realized that the system of lining up to get into every panel made the entire uh, main floors of the convention look like airline terminals during thunderstorms. Um, but once you got in, the the, the uh, programs that I was on and the one or two that I was able to get in uh, seemed as solid as any Worldcon I've been to. Yeah, while there were, I think, two serious issues that came out of the 2019 Worldcon, I did have a terrific time. I mean, Ireland's a wonderful place to visit. Dublin's a great mm-hmm. city. Any place that has high-quality Guinness is terrific. And there was a really interesting array of people. I mean... I think Dublin stands as a great follow-on from the 2014 London Worldcon, another mm. large, busy, bustling, diverse convention, and it speaks to the health of Worldcon overall in a very positive way. That said, there were the two issues. I mean, the one that continues to be discussed online is the our accessibility issues. There were real mm. accessibility issues at Dublin, and that's something that Worldcon and every convention needs to look at on an ongoing basis. I mean, there are people who are inconvenienced in wheelchairs and whatever else, and that's a real serious issue. Um, the other one, of course, was the rise and fall of the John W. Campbell Award, which, for those who are not aware, was challenged on pretty solid rounds, actually, as uh-huh. being a, a poor piece of naming by the, Cam- the 2019 Campbell Award recipient, Jeanette Ng, and um, they'll have come out and changed the name of the award. And what do you think about that? The fact they've changed it? I'm very comfortable mm-hmm. with that. I think that you know, it's not eliding or hiding or whitewashing the past to recognize that the past was more complicated than you were uh, giving it credit for. And I could see that given the – let's be polite. Let's be really, really polite uh-huh. here on the podcast, Gary. The idiosyncrasies yeah. of Mr. Campbell's worldview as publicly expressed through the pages of his science fiction magazine – probably okay to retire his name from from the award and focus on something else. And whilst I might have taken a different path personally, I can only commend the people at Dell, for, Dell, Dell Magazines for having responded so promptly. I think having made a decision, and we've seen other things like this come up uh, with conventions before. There was a, 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 an issue several years ago with ReaderCon failing to respond in a timely manner to an, to an issue, which wasn't the same kind of issue. So the response of, um, of the people at Dell was impressively quick. And the arguments, of course, you've seen arguments both ways. Uh, that, you know, are we erasing our history? Are we suddenly being politically correct in this sort of thing? And as a number of people have pointed out, including, Al, including Alec Neville Ali, uh, who, as he pointed out, probably has researched Campbell more than anyone else 
And he suggested a year ago that maybe this isn't the, the best person to be naming after an award for new writers. And then as other people pointed out, if you went back to look in New Worlds 50 years ago, you saw Moorcock and M. John Harrison saying essentially the same things about John W. Campbell that Jeanette Ng said. So this was not news in the field. This wasn't a, a, a sort of um, discovery of, of, of a hidden or suppressed history. It was, it was a widely known problem in the field. I do think, though, that when the people the, – the people who are upset about it, it's interesting to look at why they're upset. I don't think that anybody seriously believes we're trying to erase Campbell from history any more than changing That's, the That seems to be the knee-jerk response. I think there is a you – know, there's a response – there's a feeling that attempting to address these issues is a lefty, snowflake, progressive, political correctness mm. run amok kind of a thing. And then there's the other view that says, you know, sort of, well, we are judging. Why, you know, why, why now? Or why make change? It's a great tradition. The award's been going since the 1970s, and I think mm. it is a different time. Uh, and you could question whether Campbell was ever a great choice. You know, I think. I mean, I think that he was. He was an obvious choice uh, for an award given out initially, I guess, by astounding. Was, was astounding already at Dell? I, when think, the I think it might have started. just changed to analog by then. It was about 1973 that yeah. Campbell starts up. Uh, and look, fair enough. The, the people who were running uh, analog at the time, uh, Dell's predecessors, probably thought it was a fairly reasonable choice. They hadn't really paid much attention to the kind of absolutely bonkers, insane kind of things that Campbell supported or his more vile and appalling views. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, I can see that, and there's always that feeling about: do you just you know separate the artist from the art? Which, in this case, I don't think you can. So, um, well, you know. I don't know if you can or not. I mean, one of the things that hasn't come up in the discussion, one of the things that uh, just recently was published, and I've not seen a copy of it yet, is is John W. Campbell's Frozen Hell, the original manuscript of what became Who Goes There, which of course became the thing. Um, I don't think that people are going to stop reading Who Goes There any more than they stopped reading Lovecraft when no. when, when Lovecraft was more or less uh, revealed well, to be what everybody knew he was already. And, and I think you can look at the at the Campbell story and and go beyond. He was the greatest editor of the you know, before nineteen seventy in the history of the field and helped form the field, and turn around mm-hmm. and say he was a hugely influential editor who was absolutely foundational to the field. And on one hand, that gave us these positive things, but it mm-hmm. also innately gave us these other negative things. And I think we've just think been it, ignoring the negative things. Well, I don't know. The, 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 it's, it's complicated. The negative things probably weren't as evident between 1937 and 1941 as they were later in the 40s and the 50s. And I'm, think, I'm sure that the thinking that went into the Namely the Campbell Award was that here's an editor – who was the first editor who really became famous for discovering new young writers. And the new young writers were Heinlein, Asimov, L. Ron Hubbard, A.E. Van Vogt, uh, and later on, even Anne McCaffrey. Um, So he did have a reputation of having not only uh, formed the quote-unquote golden age, but of having really nurtured teenage writers. I mean, Asimov was a teenager uh, when this started. Uh, the problem is that was only a small part of his window. I think the real reason people were upset, and I think the reason passions got as high as they did, was that some of the people who felt that Campbell had invented them 
felt that you know their whole heritage was was being erased. It was like attacking your grandfather. There's a certain group of people, most of them my age or even older, who think that okay, everything I knew and understood about science fiction derived in some way from John W. Campbell. And I think that the more narrow you make your reading as you get older, the more that seems to have an enormous emotional uh, valence. So I think it, it felt to some people, I'm sure, like this was a personal attack on the science fiction that they believed they inherited and and practiced. Um, and I suppose if up, you, on up, the up other to a point hand, it was. Up to, up to a point it was. My point is, if you were to ask a group of science fiction writers of different generations, uh, who among prior generations of writers helped invent you, the, gen- the, the Jeanette in generation would not think of Campbell. They probably wouldn't think of Asimov or Heinlein or Clark or, or, or even Bradbury. Um, there's a generation of writers who came up. You talk to, I don't know, somebody the age of Kim Stanley Robinson, who's not quite old enough to have been a direct Campbell heir, but he might have been influenced by people like John Brunner, for example. So I think when people attack your ancestors, you feel like if, you, if people attack those who you emotionally feel to be your intellectual ancestors, that comes across as a personal attack on you. And I think that's why some of the emotions ran so high. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that if you feel that you've descended from that tradition, if you feel like you're still working in that tradition, because one of the great truths is whatever movements we see in the field – all mm-hmm. of the other you know, work is still being done. Campbellian science fiction is still being written and published quite successfully, so that hasn't changed. It's also probably true, though not exclusively true, that the majority, well, that the Jeanette Ings of this world have no influence from Campbell, really, or no direct influence, no detectable uh, influence. No, I think. Uh, and whilst I can see that, say, someone like Elizabeth Baer who is deeply steeped in the knowledge of the field, may feel some connection, mm-hmm. or, or not, I don't know, we don't want to put any words in her mouth, um, for a lot of other people, besides the point, I mean, it's so long ago. I mean, and there, there is no, for all that we'd like to say there, there is, I don't believe there's any equivalent editor in the history of the field to Campbell. He was, a, I mean, anybody who's foundational in any area, who's there when it's being established the first time, has an influence that nobody who comes later or changes it can really have. And um, I think. That, no, go ahead. Go ahead and finish the thought. I, I, I honestly cannot think of a single editor who had the level of influence that Campbell had. I just think that it's become more nuanced. Um, I I might argue with that a little bit. I mean, I think, I think you're right in one sense that Campbell uh, took over the pulp magazines when they were very successful. They were not. Uh, beginning to fail at all in, in 1937, but there was clearly a shift going on, um, uh, and 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 the beginnings of you know the, of, of warnings about World War II. But there was a shift in the publishing industry uh, that happened during the 40s, and one of the evidences of that was astounding. Going to being a, a digest magazine before any of the other pulps did. Um, and that was a, a decision on his part. So I think there was a change. You had a group of educated, um, smart social thinkers entering the field and finding that there was an open editor to them. I think that when the field changed again in the 50s with the collapse of the pulps and the rise of the paperback magazines and the rise of alternative visions, you could make an argument that Frederick Pohl 
was a hugely influential editor, both of books and magazines throughout the 50s. You could make an argument that Ian and Betty Ballantyne, as publishers and partly as editors, made a huge difference in the field in the early 50s because the paperback revolution uh, was another sea change in the nature of science fiction. But that was all about how the, the fiction was delivered, not the nature of the fiction being published. Oh, I think it did have to do with the nature of the fiction being published. Once you had a market for science fiction books, you had writers who could write novels as novels, not that they had to sell in serial form to magazines, but they could actually, they could take a a novella like Sturgeon did with More Than Human and make a novel out of it. But also people like Asimov could write novels, not fix-ups like Foundation. But did that impact the actual subject matter of the fiction? Campbell affected the, the fiction, the, the subject matter, and the structures that they used to tell those stories. The people you're talking about had a different kind of an impact. You know, they helped take science fiction to a broader to a broader level. They helped move mm-hmm. it into a novel format, but it didn't actually fundamentally change. It sounds like the actual material being published. Okay, I'm not sure anything has ever fundamentally changed the material being published. My, you, my you argument about science did? fiction, I, don't, I, I think Campbell added to what was being published. But I think you would see Doc Smith-style space operas survive throughout the Campbell era. That's what Planet Stories was really for. Uh, so to some extent, uh, he, he added uh, a more socially realistic science fiction based in an imaginary future that you could imagine uh, the – readers of the story living in. I would argue that uh, to go back to Frederick Pohl and to some extent H.L. Gold in the 50s, they introduced an element of genuine satire, of social and consumer and economic satire that would have been more or less alien to Campbell. When Campbell wrote wrote comic stories, they were kind of silly uh, slapstick comedy set in space. But I, I think when you had the idea that Science fiction could be a instrument of social criticism and not just of technological optimism. You had a major change in the way writers felt they could work in the field. And I don't think a writer like I'll probably I'm probably going to be corrected on this. I, I would find it hard to imagine a writer like uh, William Tenn or Philip Class publishing in Campbell's Astounding. And somebody's going to write in and say, yes, he did. And I don't know. I, have, I can't check it right now. But the point is the whole satirical thing was very much a 50s thing. The literary experimentation of the, of, the, of the 60s and 70s, I think, added something to the field. But none of the – my point is this. None of the old things went away. The Doc Smith – Barsoom never went away. Uh, Campbell's version of science fiction never went away when satire and literary experiment – it all sort of evolves along with the, with the newer developments. I will say, if you're interested in this subject, read Astounding by Alec Navala Lee. It's a terrific book and does give you a lot of information on precisely the nature of Campbell. Let me ask you this as well as a follow-on. Do you think this begins well, continue, well, it begins to really push the idea that all of the awards that are named after a particular any particular person should be possibly renamed? I think that's always been a good idea. I mean, I was uh, the, the the controversy started. Really, with World Fantasy Award, which isn't even named after anybody, but it was, it was a bust of Lovecraft, and it it seemed to me to be entirely reasonable when Lydia Corfor pointed out that she's being given an award in the shape of a person who would have wanted her dead. That's an, uh, and so, so that was an easy one to do. 
since this ha- happened, I've seen a couple of tweets from people who were shocked to discover that the Tiptree Award is named after a murderer, um, which it is. If you, if you haven't read Julie Phillips' biography, if you haven't looked at the deta- details surrounding the suicide pact and the very ambiguous nature of uh, the murder-suicide, she, she shot her husband and then shot herself. Um, and looking at only part of it, then you're going to say, well, yes, she did kill her husband, but, uh, it was part of this really complex, dark life that, that she led on and, and, and other people I've heard even complain that why are we giving a feminist award in the name of someone who hid behind a male pseudonym? None of these, I think are particularly valid arguments, but they wouldn't be arguments if you didn't have the name to begin with. Um, I think that um, the Arthur C. Clarke Award has come under – there's been a, a huge amount of debate as to whether he was actually a pedophile while he was in England, who his partners were when he was in Sri Lanka, all kinds of kind of historical uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just detailed research into what his personal behavior was like. In the hope or the assumption or the fear that you might find out that Clark was anything other than a, a, a gay British writer who was apparently terrified at the suicide of Alan Turing and decided to move to Sri Lanka in the 50s. Um, I think do we also, need to know this? I think it also raises think, another yeah. question, I think. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the reasons ostensibly for naming an award after somebody is to honor them. Mm-hmm. Is it, at least in the modern era... An honor. Are you, in effect, opening them up to some form of an, of examination that maybe somebody wouldn't need or want? I mean, there were talk. There were a few names bandied around to replace the uh, Campbell's mm-hmm. name on the Campbell Award before Astounding uh, Analog made the decision they did. And I always felt that adding a name was you know, a problem. And even if the people who were who were being honored were happy with that decision, you still created a situation where they would then become scrutinized in ways that they didn't really need to be. Mm-hmm. And I think people that, uh, well, one of the names that was suggested was uh, a very well-known editor and friend of both of ours who would never have wanted his name on an award at all. And most of the people I know wouldn't. Uh, I think there's a distinction to be made, though. When you name an award, um, let's say after John W. Campbell, you got it. You, you, you immediately created a conflict of interest. The award is really there to honor the winners of the award year to year. It's not really to honor the person who uh, you you believe the award should be named after. The exceptions, it seems to me, had, for example, had somebody uh, suggested that the Dell magazine group decided to call it the Dell Award. I don't think anybody would have argued. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact the undergraduate science fiction writing award that is given out a dick for every year is called the Dell Undergraduate Science Fiction Writing Award. I don't think anybody objects to the Booker Prize being named after, I think, a food company in England because they paid for it. They invented it. They decided they founded the award. Nobody complains uh, about Pulitzer Prizes. Nobody looks into Joseph Pulitzer, Pulitzer's personal life because the award isn't to honor him. The award is to recognize that he founded it. And the same thing's true with Alfred Nobel. We're not we're not trying to honor Alfred Nobel. It was his award to begin with. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's legitimate, it seems to me, for somebody who, find, who founds an award 
and and sets it up, and if the award survives over decades or um, or, or more, to keep that award. Um, I'm not sure that when you go to the Man Booker Prize, I'm not sure that awards should be renamed when new people infuse money into them, because then you get into an insane situation like we have with American football stadiums, for example. It's one thing to have a stadium which is uh, to use my two examples here in Chicago. This is what can go wrong with renaming things in honor of people. Uh, Wrigley Field has been here for 110 years uh, almost, and it's na- it was named after a chewing gum magnet, but he built the stadium and he built the Chicago Cubs. The Chicago White Sox, our other baseball team, is now in, playing in a stadium called Guaranteed Rate Field, which is – it's – okay – no, that's that's not right. And I think naming an award after whoever decides to infuse money into the award is a mistake. But my point is I have no trouble naming an award for the person who sponsors the award because you're not honoring them as creators. You're honoring, honoring them as yeah. benefactors. Sure. As I mean, I think my, my own solution to the Campbell situation would have been to actually let – the Dell people take their award and then I would have set up a Best New Writer Hugo. That would have been my own preference. Mm-hmm. But what they've got is a reasonably decent solution to a, a problem that needs to be resolved. I mean, I still think that there is now a question hanging over the other Campbell Award. Does it get renamed as well? Different group of people, different kind of an award? Fair That's question, a good though. question. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, the, the, the Gunn Center for the Study of Science Fiction is a very historically oriented uh, group. My guess is that James Gunn, without having consulted with him, probably would prefer to keep the name the Campbell Award attached to it. I don't know what the other people involved in it, uh, Chris McKitterick and Kitch Johnson and Michael Page, might want to think about it. But uh, it, it, it raises – and it's, it's also – that's an award for a novel, which is slightly different, but not much. Not much at all. I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I would, in fact, I'd very strongly argue that if the argument to t- change the name was valid for the the Best New Writer Award, it's valid for any award. Mm-hmm. You know, the actual rationale is the same. Uh, so, you know, who knows? We shall wait and see. Um, well, the other well, award given mm-hmm. out of Kansas, interestingly enough, is one we haven't talked about and I haven't seen discussed, and that's the Theodore Sturgeon Award for short fiction. Yeah. And and that is, uh, again, uh, Sturgeon, phenomenal short story writer who arguably mm-hmm. has influenced a younger generation of writers. A number of people I've talked to uh, grew up reading Sturgeon. Samuel Delaney owes a lot of his uh, interest in and capacity for writing character, he says, to Theodore Sturgeon. And yet there are odd things about Theodore Sturgeon's life, some of which – seem way ahead of his time in terms of his attitudes toward gender fluidity and sexuality, others of which seem kind of odd, like uh, his late-life devotion to astrology and New Age mm, stuff. So sure, sure. the question is, do we start digging around and finding things to object to about Sturgeon? I don't know. No. Uh, Okay. The, I, I agree with the, I, I agree. The simplest solution would have been to have a best new to reinstate the best new writer Hugo, which was discontinued in what 1959 or something. It was only presented, uh, I think, twice. It was presented to Philip Jose Farmer once and to Robert Silverberg. Um, yeah, and then there was and, a no award, then it was canceled. And it was canceled, uh, which is a bit odd. I, I'd, I'd like to know the real story behind that kind of politics. I'm sure there is a real story, but my hypothesis with the Hugos always is that they um, 
they hate to double recognize things. And so if a Best New Writer's work is eligible for the fiction categories, then probably it's eligible for other things too, or shouldn't be eligible for something else. Uh, Okay, anyway, so the other thing that's been on my mind in the Uh last week or two or three has been space opera, right? Now, as you know, Bob, I did two space opera anthologies or overt space opera anthologies in 2007 and nine, the new space opera and the new space opera two with uh, Gardner de Soir and have done other books. Classic anthologies by now. Well, old at least. And a couple others which have been space opera influenced and everything else. And I noticed this year that there's a whole swag of, I don't want to say newish, but certainly contemporary space operas coming out from uh, Arcadie Martin, from Max Gladstone, from Elizabeth Baer, from whomever else. And it was the whole trilogy of Yuna Lee's uh, uh, trilogy. So it's uh, it's it's this this is the danger. I, I I would have said this to you at the time, but you know it's marketing. The minute you call something new space opera, ten years later somebody is going to come out with a newer space opera, and then what do you call it? I don't know. I mean, I guess what I'd say to you is um, that. Um what I'm interested in as much as anything without getting into labels about new space opera is this. Space opera is so fundamental to science fiction that I, that I think you can't separate the two. Not all science fiction is space opera. Arguably, maybe not all space opera is science fiction, but space opera is a mm. fundamental part of science fiction itself. So then you get this question, right? It's like, well, how has space opera changed over time? I mean, Campbellian mm. space opera is something people were talking about uh, in the last few weeks. And you go through, you go through the changes during the new wave, that kind of dark awareness that came into it. You go through the whole radical hard SF of the 1980s in the UK mm-hmm. and what happened. But now, right, there are different kinds of space opera being written again. There are very, I mean, that have all of that garish brightness. I mean, the Max Gladstone novel, Empress of Forever, which I'm reading right now, mm-hmm. is enormous fun and is classic, classic uh, sort of science, uh, space opera. Mm. Uh, in fact, not, not just, I mean, like almost Bat Durston kind of science space opera. Mm. It's just that the perspectives on it have changed. You know, uh, the, well, the kind of uh, POV characters involved. I think, I think, okay, that I think is uh, a crucial difference. And it goes back to the point I was making earlier about Science fiction traditions never disappear. They just evolve. They mutate. I mean, the space opera as we know it was, you know, invented. Well, you could argue it was invented as long ago as 1914 or whenever it was. Doc Smith wrote the Skylark before he ever got it published. But it it dates back to the Gernsback era, the idea of these galaxy-spanning things. But it evolved. It evolved under Campbell. It evolved, as you you mentioned, under the the new space opera, the radical. uh, and, And it's... Because like other science fiction um, structures, I guess, it permits constant reinvention. I mean, Cam Hurley wrote a space opera with no male characters in it at all, which is very dark, very violent, um, and completely different, even though um, it was a planetary romance, actually, I guess, technically. But there were space opera elements in it. My point is that space opera as a template allows itself to be reinvented by every generation. Uh, you're going to get a different version of 
outer space of 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 um, the, from from Yoon Ha Lee or Aliette Bodard or Max Gladstone than you would have gotten from Gordon R. Dixon, or that you would have gotten from Paul Macaulay, for that matter. Well, certainly, what I find interesting is that. So the Gladstone novel, for example, throws any science fictional rationale or scientific rationale, not science fictional, scientific rationale, out the window and just goes, this is a big, enormous, crazy, star-smashing kind of a story. Uh, whereas maybe the Elizabeth Bear novel, I think it's Ancestral Nights, at least feels grittier, even though it's that same kind of thing. But then I think Bear really writes out of a tradition influenced by C.J. Cherry and books like Down Below Station and Citine, uh, where Gladstone does not. Does not. Interestingly, the Gladstone book comes with a cover quote by Peter Straub, who I would never have thought was a big space opera reader. So there you go. But what, in amongst all of this, as I began to think, well, what is 21st century post-2019 space opera like? What is the, the, the latest flavor of it? What makes it of the, of the moment? And a lot of it does seem to be, um, a willingness to commit to the adventure and the romance level, but changing the perspectives and the the viewpoints of the characters involved to make it feel fresher and newer. Uh, and that's that, exactly my point. Yes, which is fine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, and, uh, yeah. Well, to some extent, you can see this happening uh, as far back as something like Scalzi's Red Shirts, which was a not only a very very familiar space opera, but simply looking at it from the point of view of the expendable characters. Um, and I think. Choosing different characters, different ways of looking, and, 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 and different ethnic backgrounds and different uh, gender identities, all kinds of things. If you, if you take all the options now available to science fiction writers for point of view, alien points of view, mechanical points of view, AI, semi-AI point of view, um, non-binary points of view, then you can reinvent all of the great traditions of science fiction and make them seem new again. This is one of the things I think is – a uh, a, a, a great advantage of science fiction as a form is that it allows itself to be reinvented. And I think I would argue that point of view is the major uh, shift in the way science fiction is written in the last 10 years. I mean, look at the look, look, look at just for example, not space opera, but look at the two stories that were based on speaking of John W. Campbell, two, two recent stories based on the thing. Um, one is uh, uh, Peter Watts and the other is uh, Sam Miller. Completely different stories, completely new stories based on exactly the same premise. And the difference is points of view. Watts chooses the point of view of the thing. Um, Sam Miller turns it, I hope it was Sam Miller, turns it into an interesting, very contemporary fable involving AIDS and, and sexual identity. Fair enough. And I think the same thing's happening with space opera now. I, I, think, I think it probably is. Probably the most surprising thing for me in all this, did you know that the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines space opera? I did not know that. And it defines it, you ready for this? As a futuristic melodramatic fantasy involving space travelers and extraterrestrial beings. Well, that's pretty innocent, I guess. Although Except space opera doesn't need to have extra, no, space opera does not need to have extraterrestrial beings, I don't think. And is it a melodramatic fantasy? Um, well, melodramatic, I think you could make an argument that space opera by its – Oh, sure, By yeah. the nature of its tradition is melodramatic, yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, fair. Fantasy, you could make an argument that any you, – you, again, you could make an argument that it's 
um, as, as you suggested, I think recently on Facebook or somewhere, maybe it's just a heroic fantasy branch of science fiction. I'm torn on this because I think it's a little bit too uh, easy to say that it's just a fantasy. There is something fundamentally science fictional, even though there's nothing fundamentally scientific about it. You know, I think we've certainly got to the stage where, where nobody believes we're ever going to go to the stars or encounter aliens and have vast intergalactic wars in any kind of serious way. That's just madness. However, what we can say is that it's that, um, sorry, we're having problems with a cat here. Um, what we can say is that uh, space opera is fundamentally of the stuff of science fiction anyway because it uses the iconography, the, um, the, the, the memes and themes of science fiction. Of science fiction. You know, it, it, it feels like epic fantasy. It's the epic fantasy wing of science fiction, if you like, because whilst you need to be consistent and you need to use the icons of science fiction, it doesn't need to be scientifically plausible in any way. Well, it does in some way. I mean, I think you're right in the sense that uh, when somebody invents a massive um, science fictional concept like Dune or or, or, or Pern, uh, by the time people have read the third or fourth novels in the series, they've forgotten that this ever started out as science fiction and they feel like they're reading epic fantasy. I would argue that it's, scientific plausibility is a very rubbery term uh, in that – if you go back to Vernian science fiction or even some kind of Campbellian science fiction, at least what he said, that for a long time science fiction wanted to be based in events and social and technological developments that were thought to be possible. In other words, science fiction was the literature of the possible. You would hear that again and again and again back in the 40s and 50s. Now I think it's sort of shifted into not impossible. We don't worry about whether it's really possible anymore, but you can't really disprove the idea that we'll be involved in a galactic war sometime thousands of years in the future. It's just too much fun to write about, so we're going to, you know, act as though it's completely plausible. Well, the thing is, I mean, well, first of all, I would acknowledge that one of the risks with this path of of, of thought is that you start creating some sort of hardness spectrum. You know, how, how science fictional is my science, or how, 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 how SF is my science fiction? Is this really science fiction? Mm-hmm. Because the one true form of science fiction is hard SF, which I don't believe for a second. But is the logical yeah. extrapolation if you get into this idea of plausibility and whatever else. And so, you know, a Greg Egan story becomes the er form of science fiction. And as, as wonderful I think, I think as Greg's work is, I don't think that's fair on anybody else or is accurate. And it ignores the fact that, again, the Campbellian school of science fiction deprecated some of the sciences in favor of some of the others in terms of how important they should be to, mm. to science fiction. So that physics and chemistry were the most important things as opposed to anthropology or chemistry or whatever else, right? So They became the, they, they, they became the mechanisms of imagination. And it's true of Greg Egan before – yeah, before Greg Egan – it's true of, uh, of, of, of Gregory Bensford's Galactic Center series, all of which, which is a classic, you know, galaxy-spanning space opera series, as is Greg Bear's uh, series. And they're all worked out with a great deal of plausible detail in terms of how the planets work, how the artificial intelligences work, why they hate us, and so forth and so on. They're worked out meticulously. But 
<coughs> they don't need to be worked out that way. That is hard SF space opera, and hard SF space opera is certainly different from Doc Smith's space opera, which apparently is more in line with what you're now describing as Black Max Gladstone's space opera. Somewhat, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, one of the things I don't love about this discussion, even though I mean I'm interested in where space opera is, and I'd like to mm. you know, look. I would like to think there was more to 2019 space opera than simply a change of perspective. A uh, change of perspective is valuable, but I'd like to think there was, but I've not really been able to put my finger on anything specific yet. I I would like to know when you do because I I've, I've not read all the books you're talking about now so I'm I'm sort of going on on what I've read and I've not read a space opera recently. I would argue that the shift in perspective is crucial. I think it's a major shift in science fiction. I think the shift in perspective as a broad term incorporates the shift in cultural attitudes, the shift in cultural backgrounds, the fact that you have and some of the things I have seen in the last few months you now have Indian space operas and Chinese space operas and South Asian space operas and Korean space operas, none of which necessarily reinvent the concept of the space opera, but all of which bring a completely different set of cultural assumptions and, and, and cultural values to it and make you rethink the whole idea. Um, you know, Conquering the universe is one thing if you see yourself as a conquering nation, such as British and the United, Britain and the United States have done. Conquering the universe is another thing entirely if you tend to view yourself as a nation which has been repeatedly conquered, um, such as India or um, parts of Africa or um, parts of China. Do you think that science fiction will ever grow beyond space opera? I don't. I don't think so. No, I don't think it needs to. Why should? What, what do you mean grow beyond space? Science fiction is not an adolescent. You know, This is going to somehow develop pubic hair when it gets 20. It's, it's, it's just not... Well, okay. It, literature too much like that. There are there are types of stories that that we set us we've set aside over time that have become mm. less prevalent in science fiction. Uh, stories of you know psychic powers and things have have True. come and gone. All these kind of things. So anything could fall out of favor and disappear. But I sort of feel like space opera is so central that it's unimaginable that it could not be a key part of science fiction. I agree, and I think there are science fiction themes that are like that. I'm not sure that the psychic power thing was much more than a, uh, a spin-off of uh, wishful fulfillment and, and, and some crazy experiments that were never replicated. But the other theme, which I think is right up there with space opera, uh, in fact, even more so, is time travel. But uh, Time travel basically from... I'm going to say the beginning of the 20th century on was never regarded as anything realistically achievable by anybody. Um, you could come up with uh, all kinds of uh, <clears throat> high-tech or, or, or high-concept means of communicating back in time. Uh, you could come up with multiple universes and so forth. And you, could, you could address physics, but by and large, time travel is never going to go away because it's just too cool a way to tell a story. Um, well, also, also it's, it's fundamentally structurally useful at times. I mean, I think the way that some of the ways that time travel is being used right now it's really quite fascinating because mm. it's being – I can think of a couple of stories lately that have been a, not about the going back in time to go, gosh, well, let's see Jesus or let's see if we can change the outcome of the Second World yeah. War, but have been about 
subtly influencing the future and how we survive the problems that we currently face. And I think that's kind of interesting uh, and is something that's happening. You can see that in God's Monster and the Lucky Peach and, mm-hmm. in, a, and in Alistair Reynolds' Permafrost and a couple other things. Well, it's, it's, it's a theme in uh, uh, Anna Lee Nortz's The Future of Another Timeline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a theme in Max Gladstone and Namal Al-Motar's This Is How You Lose the Time War. It's a theme that probably dates back as a major theme in science fiction to to Fritz Leiber, uh, Change yeah. War Stories. Um, and it's a, it's a great idea because it has to do with how do you how do you go about creating the world that you want, or how do you, in the case of um, uh, Annalie Newitz's novel, how do you preserve, how do you keep the world that you want to live in from being destroyed by people who want to create their own timeline? So there are serious questions about about history and causality and all sorts of things that are quite literally thought experiments. And I don't think any of these people, actually, in Annalie's novel. She imagines that time travel – she has a completely magical version of time travel. There are these sort of plates of rock that exist in seven or eight places around the world that have always been uh, been able to vibrate at a certain frequency and send people to different places in time. There's no technology involved at all unless it's alien technology. But in writing the novel, she knew she needed to have some mechanism for time travel. I think part of her, being a science reporter, thought – I can't realistically think of anything technological that's going to do this. So she just basically made it a geological thing. Fair enough. Well, if space opera and time travel are always going to be with us, let us segue out for a second because we should run Mm -hmm. towards the end of today's podcast a little with maybe touching on what we've actually been reading lately because people listen to this crazy podcast, Gary, theoretically to hear about what they should be reading right now. Have you been reading anything of value, interest, merit, or whatever? Um, I can start talking about what I'm – what I was reading today was the second volume in uh, Walter John Williams's Quiller for – I don't know how many they're going to be, uh, but there are two of them so far. It's called Quiller for the Night, which is interesting because it seemed clear from the first one, which most people saw these in terms of Flashman kinds of fan- swashbuckling comic uh, – picaresque adventures with a interesting hero now it's becoming clear that this is more like the renaissance there's some science fictional ideas in it there's a kind of business about how the cosmos works and whether or not we're the center of whether or not whether or not the crystal spheres are what the stars and planets are suspended from so it's interesting to me when a writer like walter john who Essentially, even though he started with historical fiction, has most of his career spent most of his career as a science fiction writer. When he turns to historical fantasy or pseudo historical fantasy, some of the science fiction still comes out. He still wants to deal with the problem solving problems, the, the problem solving issues that, that he wrote about as a science fiction writer. So now you get to name one. Well, I just read Dave Hutchinson's The Incredible Exploding Man. Now, Hutchinson, ah, I think, I have- has established him in recent, himself in recent years as one of the best science fiction novelists coming out of the UK. Very politically aware. Very, his uh, Fractured Europe se- series is a contemporary classic, uh-huh. even though it's not been really recognized outside of the UK as much as it should have been. And this new book is a really classic British science fiction kind of a book. It has that quiet pastoral kind of tone to it at the beginning, and then a twist. It's the story of a journalist who is hired by a... Elon Musk, Bill Gates type billionaire to write a book about a science project 
a big science thing like a Large Hadron Collider style uh-huh. project that's being undertaken out in this area where they've built their own town and how it goes goes awry. The only thing I, I mean, without spoiling it too much, is I don't know that I love the way it concludes, but the actual certainly the first eighty percent of the book is terrific. Um, well, one of the things I because this is this is a titling problem that I may not be the only one that has this problem because I I, I do have an archive, but I haven't looked at it yet. My first thought was return of. Does that mean it's a sequel to something? But it's not. Yeah, that, but it, it's, it's not. A, it's not. It has to do with the structure of the story and what happens when the large science experiment actually is is turned on for the first time. Ah, okay. Um, let me suggest another one. If we haven't talked about this before, because we might have, because I think it's a September book. Uh, and that is Alex Harrow's 10,000 Doors of January. Um, and it's uh, because, again, as I've, I've said before, this happens to me. Fortunately, if I'm lucky, a couple of times a year, I didn't know who Alex Harrow was. I've now read um, the story, I guess, that was in your year's best. And I've read that novel. Um, and it's just a terrifically delightful celebration of of books and writing and, um, and, and to some extent, American history. Yeah, I mean, I'm holding the galley of the book in my hand mm-hmm. right now because I was reading it too. I mean, I'd read the same story, well, story that you had encountered, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd never, I'd not really heard of Alex much before this, and her debut novel is just delightful, uh, all about multiverses and librarians and all that, and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I think it's one of the two or three books that are most likely to end up on the World Fantasy Award ballot next year. No, it's a, it, it's a remarkable um, and, and and very enjoyable book with a terrific uh, terrific central character, I guess to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What else did I read? Uh, I've been reading. I read Angel Mage by Garth Nix, which isn't out until October, which is his uh-huh. adult science fiction novel has a really interesting and engaging stru- you know, sort of idea of magic and how power is derived through icons from these angels and this quartet of people who are caught up in the story and is as engaging as any Garth Nixon novel, novel ever is and which I would strongly recommend. Well, let me throw out another one because I just noticed while we were talking that I think this is a September title also. We now have a third anthology from Dominic Parisian and Nava Wolf. Um, who, congratulations, won the uh, Best Editor Long Form uh, Hugo Award this year. Um, no, Nava did. And The Mythic Dream is interesting to me, and I'm curious um, um, to have your view on it as an anthologist, I guess. It basically asks the contributors, uh, some of which, many of whom have been in an earlier uh, Parisian Wolf anthology, to write something about a myth, to write a story based on a myth. And it strikes me that that's almost telling a writer to write anything you damn well please because you can connect anything to a myth. And on the other hand, makes me think, how many anthologies like this are there? And is there anything new to be said? Okay, answer to the second question. Of course there's something new to be said. They wouldn't be myths if they didn't work forever for generating new stories. Uh, But it has some terrific stuff in it, some of which is... Uh, there's a Jeffrey Ford story, which is clearly based on the myth of Sisyphus 
using Sisyphus. Um, but there's there are stories in it which completely reimagine um, the myth in contemporary terms, and one of which is, uh, I think, possibly the most powerful story in the book. It's a very contemporary story without that much fantasy element in it by, not surprisingly, Alyssa Wong, um, in which, if I'm not giving too much away, the myth of Actaeon, who basically was torn apart by his own hounds because he accidentally spied uh, a goddess bathing, um, is turned into a social media kind of uh, revenge story, which is both very satisfying and very disturbing at the same time. So one of the things I think it's interesting about the anthology, and this is why I wanted to ask you as an anthologist, is it seems to me they put their trust in their authors to come up with something completely original, even though I can't imagine that they had any idea what it would look like when they set out sent out their uh, RFPs. I'm, not, I'm still entirely sure what the question is, but yes, I think so. I think that you know they've. Cu- you're right to say that they've picked up, they've, they've selected a story frame that gives authors freedom to do what they're going to do, and then they've invited a group of people that they can trust to deliver that. And you don't know how many stories they cast aside along the way before they put this book together. And I do think it's probably of the trio of anthologies that they've done together, uh, Dominic and Nava, the strongest of them. It's my least favorite title, my least favorite cover, but probably my most favorite actual book. And I think it says a lot about not having too much novelty in your anthology idea, uh, too much, and having a spot like a, a, a conceptual spine for it. In this case, you like myths and legends, whatever else. But the freedom to do whatever you're going to do, you know, I think that I think that's really important, and that's what they've given writers here. I think that um, Indra Pramit Das's story, Kali Na, is one of the real highlights of the book. A really excellent piece of science fiction. And that's the other thing. I mean, they've been flexible enough to say this can be science fiction, this can be fantasy, this can be whatever. Just give us great stories. And then, obviously, they've invited a variety of people to be involved so they get different points of view. And it's it's, it's a very strong book, you know. I mean, it's probably about, what, half science fiction, two-thirds science fiction? It's about – most of it is science fiction and a lot of it uh, – one of the things that's interesting to me, of course, is that some of the contributors – choose myths that we most readers simply wouldn't know at all um and and to some extent that always fascinates me it it, it fascinated me a little bit with their fairy tale anthology as well how how important is the source story and the answer is the source story shouldn't be important at all um to 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 your own story um and, and so you do have um, you know, myths, Jewish myths, and, 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 and Chinese myths, and and, and, and uh, Korean myths that uh, I didn't even know at all until I read this story. And I thought I didn't need to know it. It, it wasn't really that crucial to the story after all. It was a springboard for the writer, and that seems to me what they're doing as anthologists is offering springboards to oh, writers. Sure. I think probably there might also be some additional mm-hmm. bits and pieces, some additional resonance you get if you know the the source story. But I don't think you need to have it at all. And I think yeah, it works out really well. But anyway, yeah. we should wind up. This, we're just back from okay. uh, Dublin. And uh, hopefully we'll be back next week. We have thoughts towards plans for lots of more new episodes. So we'll see what happens there. But hopefully we'll be around for a while for listeners. Excellent. And we will look forward to hearing from any of our listeners that are that, that are still out there uh, about other books maybe they'd recommend for the yeah. for the fall. 
Okay. Well, until then, it was good talking to Gary. And until then, that's this has been the Good Street Podcast. <laughs>